Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rood. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude, and today I am so honored and excited to bring on a very special woman as my guest. I know you're going to love her, and we're going to have an awesome conversation. We have so much to talk about. Maithrey Meliana is a women's empowerment and spiritual teacher, a holistic psychotherapist, trauma expert, speaker, and author. She leads workshops and programs for women that empower them to heal from trauma, liberate themselves from patriarchy, and connect with the divine feminine so that they can live true, bold, inspired lives. Maithrey is also the founder of Temple of Sound Healing, which teaches sound healing to health and wellness practitioners and social justice community leaders. An immigrant from India, Maithrey shares her story of healing, empowerment, and awakening in her memoir, Brown Skin Girl, an Indian American woman's magical journey from broken to beautiful. Welcome to the show, Maithrey. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited because we talked about doing this interview midway through 2020 and didn't get it done. So it's just been bubbling in me, (laughs) especially since I had the incredible pleasure of reading your book and I just kept thinking, oh, we got to talk and we got to share your experience and everything that you do in the world now, because it's so powerful and there's so many women who need to hear about it. Thank you so much for reading my book. I love that. (laughs) It's great. And we're going to have a link to that in the show notes and it will be on my resources page on my website as well, because it's one that I really want to share far and wide. Oh, thank you so much. Before we dive into your story, I would like to laugh, to ask you a few questions. So, okay. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> I know that you love nature and you've lived in many places. So what's your favorite place to be out in nature? Hawaii <laughs> and Brazil. What is it about those two places that draw you? Well, Hawaii has this extraordinary magical energy unlike any other place I've visited. It's gorgeous and healing. It really feels like a piece of heaven on earth. I've received such beautiful communications from nature there, beautiful healings, messages, and there's so many spirits and high-level beings there. I love it. It feels like how the earth is meant to be. (laughs) you know and how it used to be a long time ago it's very primordial and I think that that part of me awakens oh yeah I can definitely relate to that because in Hawaii you have all the elements in Mm -hmm. you have basically earth being born all the time right (laughs) (laughs) oh that's cool and what about Brazil Um, Brazil, it's a particular place where I go to. Again, the nature feels, it's just very vibrant. And the place I go to is is a spiritual place. So again, you know, all the places I love have a very high spiritual energy. But in Brazil, I feel like people are just very open and very loving and friendly. And there's, there's just sort of this joyfulness about being People are very connected. There's family as well as business. It feels like a a really great work-life balance. Like they've got that. That's wonderful. Something that is sorely missing in many areas of the U.S., that's for sure. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) my life too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm very blessed because I was able to move out of Silicon Valley after 30 years there and up into the Sierra foothills. And so... I basically live in nature now. Oh, how beautiful. There's not very many people around, so it's very rare that I hear actual, you know, human being noises. 
<laughs> and it means that now I actually get to hear things that I don't really remember ever actually being able to hear before, just like the wind in the trees and a bird's wings as it flies over and things like that. So it has helped my work life to be immersed in that most of the time during the day. That's wonderful. Yeah, I find that too. I find like I have to live in a place where there's beautiful nature and it's usually outside a city. I'm not in the Sierra foothills, but which sounds amazing. <laughs> but yeah, it's hard for me to live in the city anymore. Yeah, I look back on 30 years in Silicon Valley and wonder how on earth I managed to be in concrete <laughs> suburbia for that long. <laughs> well, if you could make the sound of any animal on the planet, what would it be? And why would you pick that one? It's strange. As soon as you said that, although I've never thought of it, the animal wolf came to mind. I think there's something about how it lifts its head up. I think which women are all learning and practicing to do to literally open up our throats and kind of let it out and howl. There's something of that that feels required almost. And it's like we have, like I for myself personally, I need to kind of open up my throat to just howl and let my truth, my expressions out. And this bumps. And especially that it do that at night with the moon. And that to me is evokes the feminine. I love that. I mean, I literally got goosebumps while you were saying that. And one of the things about wolves is they howl together too. Yes. Community, sisterhood, right? Oh, that's neat. And when I was thinking about that question, the first thing that came to mind to me was <laughs> cats purring. Mm. <laughs> and I think it's just because when cats purr, they're just signaling contentment. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful. nice to be at a point in life now where I can actually feel that. This so. That's great. And the sounds are so marvelous. Yeah, I think the games that you can play where you pretend to be an animal are really mm -hmm. fun to do too and really help you tap into different parts of yourself that maybe you might feel uncomfortable giving yourself permission to try on. Right. <laughs> What's your favorite self-care practice? Sound. I'm a sound healer. So it's usually either playing my bowls and singing or playing my piano. I mean, I have several, but that's right up there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's the most difficult decision you've ever had to make? It was leaving my marriage with to an Indian man. And can you give a little bit of insight into what the process was? Yeah. Making so, that decision? Yeah. I had married him at a very, very low point in my life. And there, I didn't really love him, but I, I was just coming out of something so enormous that I wasn't even myself. I wasn't even thinking straight. And but married to him for fifteen years, and what was you know, on the surface seemed like a happy, successful marriage, but inside wasn't. And I had, as an Indian woman, I had grown up believing. And the messages I'd received from my culture was that once you get married, you stay married. Because I'd grown up seeing a lot of unhappy marriages around me, but that's just what people did. Because at the time I grew up, love wasn't part of marriage. It was usually an arranged marriage and an arrangement between two families. And love was the last, if at all, it wasn't even considered. It was just assumed that love would happen once you marry. So, you know, this person and I, we had a form of love. It's not like it was completely loveless, but it got more and more emotionally abusive and eventually physically abusive. But I really struggled with the thought, with the idea of leaving him. I had been unhappy for years and yet I stopped myself or just even didn't know that I had a way out. I assumed because of my culture that I had to stay. I, there was nobody else in my large family of hundreds of women who had left their husbands. So there was nobody who'd sort of paved the path before me. And I mean, I knew it was 
perfectly fine for an American-born woman to do that. But having been born and grown up in India, that was just, it felt like I was betraying the tribe. I was letting everything, letting my culture down, letting my family down. And then for myself, I didn't worry about the stigma so much, but it was completely new. It was a foreign land, so to speak. So I really wrestled with my guilt, I would say, the guilt of leaving and the codes of sacrifice and obedience and being the good wife versus my own happiness. And it was a tough decision because everyone around me was saying, don't leave, even after physical abuse. So you can imagine how tight and entrenched those patriarchal codes are. So how did you actually arrive at that decision? I think it happened over several years. I've had quite a bit of trauma and I think I was numb for a lot of several parts of those years. I had an ectopic pregnancy and after the surgery, it felt like the floodgates opened and I could feel things I hadn't felt for years. <laughs> and it felt like a volcano. Speaking of Hawaii, it felt like this volcano just surged in me and I was just, I couldn't live with myself. The fact that I was living a lie former to myself was very forefront. And those feelings eventually over a period of three years we were unhappy and it, everything just got more and more restricted and tight. And I felt very, my freedom was really limited by him. And eventually there was, as I was thinking about all this, there was a, he, there's a physical abusive incident from his end. And that decided it for me. Yeah. So it sounds like it was, a long and painful experience. Mm -hmm. Really, that pregnancy and surgery was a catalyst for a change. And I think yeah. that's often the case. I mean, speaking for myself, I know I have a great capacity to endure mm -hmm. <laughs> and ending something is difficult mentally for me just because I hate giving up on things and like you don't want to disappoint people. And I also, when I got married, I married for life and even coming to terms with the fact that that wasn't really in my best interest was hard. So I think you showed an immense amount of strength to go through what you did, which was on top of what had come before, which I want to dive into in a few minutes and, but reach a point where I think that with that ectopic pregnancy, which my mother had, and she had two of those apparently before I was born. I know that it's an experience of confronting birth and death all in the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I imagine, I haven't experienced that, but I imagine that that really it could bust open mm -hmm. a whole lot of what had been suppressed. Mm-hmm. It did. So I um, create I'm, that desire for life. Exactly. <laughs> Your own life. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I know that experience was a gift. I really treat it as a gift. Yeah. In hindsight. In hindsight. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> I would love for you to share a little bit about how your story really began. You grew up in India. And I don't think many of my listeners really know much about life in India as like. I lived there for a year from nine to 10, just as a little kid visiting oh. and loved it. But I imagine that growing up as a little Indian girl was very different from what I experienced as a little blonde haired, blue, white American <sighs> kid that just came to visit for a year. You know what I mean? So I would yeah. love to hear what the environment was like when you grew up and what the family was like and, and what you found in childhood that was joyous and the things that happened that really were not so joyous, if you yeah. could share a little bit about yeah. that. Growing up in India and especially, you know, year when I was a child, which was in the 60s, we lived outside a large town and I grew up in nature. It wasn't 
green nature. It was semi-arid, but still there were these big rocks and trees and just huge spaces that didn't have homes, you know. So I remember I was so free to explore nature. And I remember a lot of spending a lot of time outdoors on trees, climbing trees, laying on trees on these boulders with the curled up with a book or some food and dog and biking through them with a friend and being very closely connected with nature. I felt like I could commune with nature and have nature and nature would commune with me. That all seemed perfectly ordinary. I also could see elementals and that seemed also ordinary and I assumed everyone had the same experience. So it was really quite magical. I went to a lovely school, had great friends. That was great. I grew up with privilege, so I feel, you know, very fortunate to have been able to go to a good school and everything was provided for me. So in terms of that, I feel very, very fortunate. My mother is very practical, just focused on more the material and my father was off busy working. So there wasn't much emotional connection, if any. And I found that with friends. I found that I had a dog, you know. So I was figuring all that out for myself. I did have abuse, sexual abuse, from my brother for about three years. And I think what I learned to do because of that was to compartmentalize, like, the night was the night and the day was the day. And they're two very different things, experiences. And, you know, that time in India when I, when I was six to about nine, I didn't even know what sex was. He was a tough brother to have. He was kind of a bully. So it just seemed an extension of that. I think whether you know what's happening or not, there just is a sense of shame. And I tried speaking in my childlike way to my parents about it, but they didn't understand. And I didn't even know what to say. I was also very, very aware of the difference between me and my brother. Just being a girl in India, this sense of you're valued less than a man. You're not as important. You don't matter as much. So even though I was educated and went to good schools, that was also part of how my identity was shaped. How did you protect yourself emotionally when you were experiencing that? I mean, I can understand how being able to go out of the house during the daytime and just mm -hmm. lose yourself in nature mm -hmm. uh, must have been mm -hmm. a wonderful thing to be able to do. But knowing that was likely to happen at night and mm -hmm. that you didn't have the language really to tell your parents. And I imagine even if you had, they might not have received it very well. How did you cope with that? I think I just left my body. I dissociated. I can even remember that happening, like me being out like a few feet up and away from what was happening and witnessing it. I don't know. Seeing that's the best answer I can give you. I dread it every night because I didn't know if it would happen that night or not. And because we shared the same bedroom. And this will tell you of how innocent I was. I assumed that this is what all brothers and sisters did. <laughs> you know, and I remember thinking, oh, this friend has a brother. They're probably doing that too. How did I protect myself? I think by suppressing it, by compartmentalizing it, putting it somewhere where I couldn't connect with it in the day and dissociating while it was happening. And so this was happening when you were under Six. 10. Yeah, pretty darned young. What happened as you entered into your teen years? What, what was life like then as you got to be a little bit older? Yeah, so he went off to boarding school and that's what saved, that's what ended it, which was wonderful. And then I went off to boarding school at 12. So you know, life changed and that it was just a huge relief after that. And then, you know, I was living my life as, you know, 12 to 16 and my family immigrated here when I was 16. But I 
obviously my brother and I were never close. And there was no one in my family I could go to. There wasn't really, I think emotionally, I knew there wasn't a safe person who would get it. You know, had there been, I would have probably told someone. But I think so much, I didn't go, there was no space for anything emotional. It was all sort of having to look a certain way or be a certain way and be quiet, be seen, but not heard. So I imagine that when you came to the U.S. as a 16-year-old, you know, mm-hmm. entered a completely different culture, it must have, A, been a bit of a shock, but B, maybe been a bit of an opportunity too. Like, how did life change then? It was such a huge change. And I fell in love with the idea of freedom. I mean, I was just so excited that, oh my goodness, I get to have so much of freedom and do so much here that I couldn't do, even think of doing. So I just embraced it. It was hard initially, of course, just the culture, the culturation part, but for a couple of years. But then once I made friends, you know, I just loved the opportunity to study so many different things to to even major in music was a huge thing for me. And to follow my heart was not something I'd grown up with. I had grown up with, you essentially have an assembly line of life that's sort of given to you and you just follow the rules and off you go. That's what life is. But here, the possibility of creating your own path and choosing something that you love to do and marrying someone whom you want to marry and falling in love, it was amazing. So I really embraced it. So, but my family you, didn't. Yeah, I was going to ask you that was, that was my next question was so you found all of this credible freedom. Right. And at a time of life, too, where, you know, that's when developmentally we were very focused on letting go mm-hmm. of being defined by the family and starting to be more defined by our friendship and our peers and trying to figure out. You know, who we're going to be as adults and what we're going to do. So it was like perfect timing for you. But I can imagine that was a little disruptive to your family because I don't think they probably were ready to have you embrace that kind of freedom and sort of escape the control of the culture. Yeah, and that's the perfect word, control. So it was not only the culture. My mother's also a narcissist. And so it was, I had assumed... Because in India, when I was growing up, or just in general, my family really embraced education. That was the most important thing for our family. We, didn't, we weren't really religious, but education was really important. So I always was sent, you know, good schools. My mother, her siblings were sent to the good school, best schools. The emphasis on education was tremendous. And... So I assumed, and I think this was my, one of the things I didn't understand is that they didn't embrace that here. For whatever reason, it's almost like they dug in their heels. And I think my parents must have been in their 40s. They dug in their heels. And my mother, who had been very westernized and very progressive in India, suddenly reverted to this extremely traditional Indian woman. And it was very strange to me. I didn't understand it. So they were very, I think in their mind, they thought I was just going to do what a lot of Indians do, which is come here and just take what they want to take, but stay Indian. Like they'll come and have the jobs, they'll, you know, get a lot of the material benefits, but stay very, can stay, not all obviously, but can stay very sort of secluded in the Indian community. Mm-hmm. I didn't want any of that. That was the last thing I wanted. I wanted to explore freedom and myself and, you know, chart my own life. So there was this conflict, right, from even choosing my own major. You know, they were sort of dictating important decisions. And I rebelled and I went off and went to graduate school and I was financially independent. Fell in love with an American man. And we were together for about a year and a half. And in my mind, I wanted to break free of them. I had my own plans of breaking free of them. And, you know, someone, one, I will say, I am 
not a very savvy person. I'm pretty gullible. <laughs> I didn't know all my rights. I didn't know what a woman would have known growing up here in terms of her rights as a human being. So I thought if I had my passport and my green card, I would be free of my parents. And it was just a horrible, horrible circumstance. I was visiting my parents. I'd written to my boyfriend that I'd gotten my passport and green card. My mother read the letter. And then these two aunts flew in. It was like a family intervention. They flew in from different parts of the country. And they sat me down and said, are you with this American man? And I was really shocked. I didn't know how they found out. It was all very startling to me. So, it, you know, it was just a sudden intervention. And I just decided to own it. And I'd own all of it and break free. Like that was the moment. I hadn't known how that would happen. I knew it would come at some point, but here it was. So I said, yes, I'm with him. And these are my plans. At that point, my mother said, well, we want you to go to India for three months. And after that, if you want to be with him, we'll allow you. You can do that. So you had an opportunity to really tell the truth about what was going on. Yeah. And kind of make your proclamation, you know, of, I'm not going to follow the train tracks. and I'm not going to be controlled and do what is expected. I'm going to build my own life. And then it sounds like a you know, fairly reasonable thing to say, okay, we'll just come back for a few months. And then if you still really want this, okay. I think a lot of parents do that, you know, when a kid is stepping outside the lines of what the parents want them to, they're like, well, okay, let's do this. And then if you still are really committed, then okay. So what happened when you agreed to that? So the very next day, we were in New York heading back. And I remember calling my boyfriend and he begging me not to get on the plane. He said, you won't come back. And I said, I'm doing this for us. That's what I believed. And once we arrived, my mother had said, you can write to him, you can call him, you can do all of that. And once we were there, she took my passport, my green card, and said I was never returning. And keep in mind, I'm 22. Graduate school, I have a teaching assistantship, I'm financially independent. By all rights, nothing. I was my own person, I was not dependent on them. And to go from that, and she said, I was, we were staying with my, her parents, so my two old grandparents in four rooms, they have a little four room cottage. And she said, you're not leaving the house. It was the hardest experience of my life, even more, I think, on some levels than the incest, because I lost everything. One thing to lose someone you love, it's a whole other thing to lose that amount of freedom. And my soul wanted to do music. That's what I'm here to do. And to take everything away and treat someone like they're the worst person, something's wrong with them. And I couldn't understand it because for me, sex was so beautiful. It was so sacred, it was so transcendent. But they viewed it as this dirty, shameful act and that I was somehow depraved for wanting that. And it was awful. It's hard to even put into words. I write about it in the book, of course, in great detail. But to summarize it, my mother left after three months. And I should say, she also took me to a Swami, who's a spiritual teacher, a guru. And he said, you have to learn what it means to be an Indian woman. And I spent six, he asked me to travel with him for six weeks. And it, this is a world famous Swami with tens and hundreds of thousands of people. So, and there was public shaming public sort of what I call psychological shredding of me. And that was a linchpin because I could have withstood my family thinking all those things about me. But when it came to this teacher and I knew nothing about religion, I was, you know, just living my life, music. And to me, his ideas and what 
the teachings that he taught, which were very feminine, sex negative, body negative, it was all about transcending and leaving and going off the planet. To me, the message that I received was that God thought that I was bad for what I had done. It's so hard to wrap my mind around this because on the one hand, you had gotten free from the cultural confinement and started to build an amazing life. And it sounds as though despite the sexual abuse and the incest when you were a child, you actually built a healthy relationship with a man that was also a very wonderful sexual relationship, which I think is remarkable, but also gotten into school and started to pursue your passion and your dream and just become this independent, embodied, powerful woman. And then this massive betrayal of your trust. And I, I mean, you use the word gullible. And I can just imagine like how shocking it was to all of a sudden find all of that gone and not just gone because you did something to lose it, but because it was taken. And in any other circumstance, I mean, this would be like, this is kidnapping. This is imprisonment. You know, (laughs) you can't do this to another human being, but to have it be your family must have been a tremendously difficult to deal with. And I'm wondering if they thought somehow that they were saving you from yourself, you know, rescuing you from something evil and bad that you shouldn't be doing, or if, they were more motivated by saving themselves the embarrassment of having a daughter that had kind of gone off the reservation. I think it was both, but I think the second would (laughs) priority. I can't speak for them, obviously, Mm -hmm. but, you know, almost all Indian, well, a lot of Indian families, and certainly mine was the case that your status, it's a very group-oriented culture. In the West, it's about the individual, but in the East, it's about the family. And the individual serves the family, which is very opposite to the West, where it's, you know, in your individualities is really prized. And in the East, the group, the family, family name, the family honor, the family dignity, all of that, everyone strives to uphold that. So I had let down the family, and I think they were thinking that I had sort of gotten into bad ways, quote unquote, and had lost my way. But they were also very, very cognizant of what that would mean for the family because this is racism. And we typically don't think of racism from a person of color's point of view, but in this case, it's sort of a reverse thing. It's sort of Indians thinking that white people are less than in certain ways. So... It's a very curious and strange perspective, but there it is. They don't approve of multiple partners, sexual freedom. Yeah, so they they were doing both. It was both protecting the family name and what in their mind was me, protecting Mm -hmm. me for myself. And so by taking away your passport, your green card, your ability to communicate, even your physical freedom, because I remember from your book that you were confined and basically not allowed out for a long, long Mm -hmm. time. And then hooking you up with this Swami who was not exactly the kind, generous, compassionate person you'd hope. Uh, It sounds to me as the effort really was, number one, to erase you as the woman that you had become, and then to recreate you as the one that they thought you should have been. I don't know how I would survive something like that. I'm curious... Yeah. How did you keep going day after day? I don't think I did. I think I remember coming back from the Swami. It was just six weeks. But I remember coming back feeling like something had been rearranged inside of me. I couldn't even put words to it. But I felt like something significant had changed inside me. It's one thing to feel shame, but it's a whole other thing to be have this public kind of shaming. I think I came back believing I was bad and that God thought I was bad. And I don't think there's a worse sentence that anybody can place on another human being. And, you know, there's so many crimes like this committed in the name of religion and spirituality. I think it is the worst because in my understanding, there's so many levels of trauma, right? But I think 
to tell a person that they have they are bad because there's never a moment that we're not loved by the divine but i took on under that huge duress i took on the projections and i believe that to be who i was i went numb i became what i call desperately spiritual you know reading the teachings that the swami taught and which are you know valid teachings and not it's a stream it is not i thought there's some way i had to become good so i could redeem myself in, in god's eyes that was the fundamental thread for many years after and i wasn't myself i met friends who said you've changed so much we don't even know who you are so i went numb i disconnected from my body i couldn't feel much too painful to feel and the pain of losing my boyfriend and music it was really unbearable and the isolation you know it's not like i had access to friends there was no internet there was nothing i mean i was a graduate student stimulated intelligent you know living my life having all kinds of learning and to be shut up in a room and by your family does a number on you it really does a number on you because who then can you trust so internally there was a lot of it was much too painful and i went numb so how did you escape that sort of prison environment that imprisonment <laughs> Yeah. And actually make it back to the US to freedom again. Yeah, so they let me out after a year and I got a job. I thought I said I decided that if nothing else I'll get a job and become financially independent and leave them and live in India whatever how figure it out and eventually find my way back. So I worked, I found a job, I saved money. and meanwhile they were trying to get me married to these to arrange marriages which fortunately they gave me that freedom to say no and then finally there was a proposal from someone in the US so they flew me back and what i did was i had met a man in india and just instead of taking the ticket from new york to wherever my parents were i went with him to indiana and so i was physically free but not internally free so that i was lucky there was a proposal here otherwise i don't know what would have happened and then you know i found a job and he was in graduate school i started graduate school and but i couldn't feel when i played the piano and that will tell you how much trauma there was i could not feel emotionally and it that was just heartbreaking because it was me it was what i most loved and so i then realized i had to make life survive and make a living in a different way which i did and that i ended up marrying the man that was not the right decision like soon like two or three months after we arrived <laughs> there you have it <laughs> what an incredible story and your strength to go through all of that and i know we kind of went over the surface really but it's just phenomenal can you talk a little bit about fear and how your relationship to fear has changed after everything that you went through yes well i lived for many years married to this man you know within fear fear of everything i think i was afraid of just about everything i thought i was free but i wasn't free But at some point, you know, I think the marriage, the my happiness and our marriage just not being right sort of squeezed me to question, made me question everything. And when I was questioning, part of what I realized was that the feminine had been discounted in the teachings, the feminine of my body, the feminine of my sexuality, and and it was then that Kali the goddess sort of came into my life and she's the goddess of a very fierce warrior goddess and she gave me some kind of strength I think once I saw how wrong everything at least I had been thinking you know yes people have the right to their own opinions of course you know my family does but I think 
once I realized I had misperceived or under duress been, you know, made to, but still I had ended up misunderstanding everything that gave me the courage to just take the next step, take the one or two steps. I didn't know what lay ahead, but I said very small goals for myself. Like if I work in a bookstore for the rest of my life, I'll be free, you know? So taking the baby steps when I couldn't chart out anything in my life was a way to crawl <laughs> forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. Thinking about what you've shared, I mean, there were so many times where you were numb or shut down or even disassociating because what was happening was so painful and that's all about fear (laughs) (laughs) and to reach a point where something else occurs as possible that hasn't occurred as possible before and not know the big picture plan you know but still come up with that one small step it's cool that that's what you said because that's what I teach is you know you don't have to know the whole entire end result that you want to try to get to and most of the time we don't (laughs) but if you just do one thing that one step changes the situation that you're in slightly and opens things up and reveals things that you wouldn't have seen unless you'd have done that one thing and it's funny because that's one of the things that the navy seals do too when they are doing training is they don't throw people in the deep end and say here do this ginormous task They talk about stress inoculation of starting with one piece, safe environment with just one task where you can see what you're doing. You've got, you know, all your senses, you can manage this thing and then, you know, take it to a slightly different environment where there's an additional difficulty added, you know, maybe you're doing it blindfolded, Um, you know, so they, they sort of move you along from something that is small and doable to something that's more challenging to eventually trying the really big thing. And it's interesting to hear how that really unfolded in your life very organically. Yeah, I love that you said all that. That's great. I think, and even to this day, I mean, there's still, you know, we all get scared about things and are daunted by things we are to do, but to take that one step, okay, today I can do this. And that's plenty. You know, I think it's a way to build that muscle and move, just move, because we can get stuck, right? But it keeps us moving. Well, the other thing that that I find really fascinating about your story is, you know, one of the things that keeps people from trying something new or taking that step is sort of a fear of what it could cost them. You know, like, Mm -hmm. if I do this, I could lose everything. (laughs) Well, Mm -hmm. you did. You lost (laughs) pretty much as much of your identity and your life as you could possibly do without actually having been killed. And yeah. So for you now, like, you know, that no matter what it is that you do, the odds of you paying a price that you can't actually manage are pretty darn small because you've already been there and done that. I mean, I really can't imagine, like you have experienced what is probably most people's worst case scenario, really. And you're in a wonderful place now. So that calculus of, you know, I'm afraid to do this because I might lose everything, you know, is very different when you have already experienced the the kinds of things that you have. Curious about music, because it was such a big Mm. part of your life before you went back to India. And that was one of the parts of your book that just made me smile the whole entire time was just hearing, you know, reading and kind of imagining along with you that journey of really learning to play these incredibly difficult pieces on the piano, but with heart and soul. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to realize that was lost when you were basically kidnapped <laughs> and that then when you tried to reconnect to it, it just wasn't there is distressing. And I wonder like how, like, did that come back? How did it come back? And I mean, it must've come back because you teach the sound healing. And so what role does music play in your life now? How did that come about? Yeah. So when I left my marriage, one of the things I did for myself, I decided to give myself a gift of a piano. My divorce gift to myself was a piano. 
And because I knew, like I've said before, it's my soul. And so I sat and played and it was heartbreaking because I, again, I could feel this. What was different about this time was I could now feel and cry, which is good because I'm feeling as opposed to not feeling. So I've gone from numb to feeling. And I just started with very simple pieces. And I did that for a few years. I even taught lessons too. So that was always good to do. So I just kept playing because I knew that the more I played, it would return me to myself. And I would remember what I knew. It was medicine for me. It was healing for me. And it was beauty. And it reminded me, bringing me back to me. So, but there were also many times I would go, okay, what am I doing with this? I can't have a career with this. What am I doing? I would feel frustrated. Where is it going? I remember closing my piano lid and opening it. But <laughs> where am I going with all of this? And and then I went to a spiritual healing center in Brazil and there had some extraordinary healing and connection with spirits. And there's just my intuition open, just all, everything was magical, huge healings and so on. And suddenly one day I just thought, I've been trying to find a piano trio because I've always wanted to play in a piano trio. Just one day, just getting this urge to look on Craigslist, just look for a musician there. And I found this violinist and we met and played and he happened to know a cellist. And so we came together and played piano trios for two or three years. And it was so marvelous to be reunited with classical music and play to my heart's content. <laughs> and yet I'd received the messages that this was, even this was a transition to something more. So I don't know if it's okay to talk about spiritual things on your show, but. Absolutely. Okay. I had a visitation one day. I was one day listening to some piano music and just, I think, feeling something very deeply. And I've suddenly the room, I felt this presence, a very, very high, exalted presence. And I just instantly broke down into tears because there was so much love in the room. It was a love that was just hard to even be in, leave alone receive. And the presence was there for a while. And then I don't know what made me go to the piano and just have this intention. If there's nothing else I do with the rest of my life other than play, whatever little nothings I play on my piano for the divine feminine or this being, then my life would have been well lived. So I sat down and I had that to that point, never been able to improvise that as a classical musician, all I knew was to play from the music and I had tried improvising, but it just didn't come. I figured, okay, I'm not that kind of a person, but this music started flowing and it brought me to tears because it felt like the divine feminine coming through me. And I was stunned. I was amazed. I didn't know what was happening. But every day for the next two years, I would just sit at my piano and play. Not for long. I mean, maybe 20 minutes. But always this music started and I would cry a lot. It was healing me. Then I started telling friends about it. And had them come lie under my piano. <laughs> they had extraordinary healings. And so, and then I started receiving messages from my guides as to what it was. And it blew my mind because healing music was coming through me. And so that is a part of what I do today. And to me, it is the most extraordinary gift after all that I've been through with music to have something like this come through is totally unexpected, totally beyond anything that I could imagine or have believed and taken what I've known as music and expanded it to something far greater than what I had dreamed of at 22. I got chills. <laughs> 
that's so cool. It is so cool to realize that everything all fell into place into something so big and so powerful and so unexpected. And like you said, something that you never would have really have dreamed of. And that's one of the things like when we're dreaming and trying to figure out what we're going to do with ourselves in this life and how we're going to have an impact, like we don't realize how limited our vision of what is possible actually is. Absolutely. Yeah, we have absolutely. no idea. <laughs> well, I would love to hear how do you work with people now? And can you talk a little bit about what sound healing is? Because I imagine most people don't really know what that means. Yeah. So sound is, we all respond to sound, right? When we go to the ocean, when we go out in nature, when we hear birds, the sound of a wolf, the sound of a cat, as we talked about, right? We respond to, to music, we respond to sound, and we change. Music has the ability to change us and alter our mood, our consciousness. And we do this instinctively, and all the films work with this when there's something sad they play something sad and we feel sad when there's something exciting we feel excited and so our emotions are can be changed and we can be changed through through sound but there's a lot more than that we are ultimately energy and vibration which really means we are a form of sound we are frequencies sound is working on a very subtle level most of medicine works with physics with biology and chemistry but with sound, we're working on the level of physics and quantum physics, where we can change, we can heal, and we can shift our perspective in a few moments. And this is mind, body, and spirit. Typically, healing is, okay, I have to change this how I think, and then I have to change this in my body, and then I have to change this spiritually. There's all compartmentalized. But when you're working with energy or vibration, you can be healing the past as well as opening up to future possibilities. So I find it to be just such an extraordinary modality and paradigm that change happens so fast. And I started introducing it into my psychotherapy practice, very simply experimental I was amazed. At first I practiced on myself and then I started that people would shift and get these insights and downloads and the healing was happening. What would take years was now just taking a few weeks or months and essentially my practice shut down <laughs> because it was happening so fast. But as well, women were connecting with their power. And once I started using voice, I felt like I had tapped into some nerve, nervous system sort of thing where by helping women connect literally with their physical voice, the degree of empowerment that they experienced was off the charts. And there was no need for talk. There was no need for, you know, there was a need to hold in a very short time so much could happen. And just in terms of embodiment, talk about dissociation, women coming to their bodies, feeling their power. You know, oftentimes you try, how do I feel powerful? Because we can, we try to think our way into it sometimes, but this feeling of embodiment, sound helps us women, because we're the ones who need it, connect to our power and open up in all kinds of ways that has been just... To me, I see, I know that this is the wave of the future, at least one of the very powerful modalities. So how exactly does it work? What exactly do you do? Somebody, if a woman comes to you, how do you go through the process? Yeah. And I'm well, sure it's very different according to you know who the woman is, obviously. Absolutely. But in general. <laughs> yeah. So let's just take an example. Can you, is there an example of, you know, maybe a listener or somebody you work with. So just so we have someone to sort of simulate here. Yeah, think about a woman who 
like you experienced physical trauma. And sexual trauma yeah so you know the first thing obviously would be some i would assess and see where she's at what's capable what she, what her beliefs are and i start slow i don't like the navy seals i don't throw anybody in the deep end i start with introducing maybe crystal singing bowls or an instrument and just people even need a bridge to even accepting that sound can be a part of healing because we often associate it as entertainment. We don't think of it as healing. But just even playing a crystal singing bowl for five minutes, two minutes, people feel it. And there's natural just relaxation response. People feel relaxed. They let go. They let go of the tension, of the stress, of and just the body, so the nervous system re relaxes. So that thing of needing for with people to be safe and trust, you know, it's very, it's all inbuilt with sound. So I might just introduce the crystal singing bowl for a while. And it depends on each person. I've developed a whole method, right? That people go through three, four levels to train and how to work with trauma. But very briefly, one is with the bowls, the second is with the voice, and then third is with spirit, where first the person is receiving, and then I open, have ways, teach them and ways to use their own voice to find their power, to find themselves, to integrate, release emotions. And as they work with sound, they open up to their higher self. So they go there they expand from feeling whether it's a victim mentality or you know those negative states or those limited states to accessing power to accessing peace to accessing possibility it's as though sound expands their sense of self from oh this is me and this is what happened to me to yes this happened but whoa where's this power in me now? <laughs> I can, well, this is what I want to say. And this is my truth. And I've had women, you know, turn around with sexual abuse, what would have taken a decade to walk out in a few months. I use the body. It's a very somatic process. So I've kind of developed my own way, which is very organic, but it also brings in other modalities, but our bodies love sound. And our bodies are naturally whole and we are naturally whole. And what I find that sound does is it creates an environment. You create a space for each person to sort of switch back to their truth, to their natural truth. It connects them with their natural truth. It allows the body to heal and open and release. So, no one is doing the healing. We're just providing an environment where the body, the psyche itself knows what to do. Oh, I love that. I love the picture that you paint of that process. And I think the reason why originally, like even before I knew about your book, that I wanted you to come on the show and talk about this is because the women that I work with, often, whether they've experienced something violent and traumatic before or not, you know, have fear and have fear about what might happen if, or that it might happen again. And that fear is what creates silence, diminishes the voice that women, and you'll often see women trying to make themselves disappear, trying to make themselves smaller and invisible and to not be heard and to not draw attention just because they don't want anything bad to happen. And, you know, reclaiming, sometimes it's not even reclaiming, but tapping into <laughs> your power and allowing yourself to be seen and allowing yourself to be heard and allowing yourself to take up space on the planet is such a huge shift. And I love the process that you use, you know, I think I actually, I have a singing bowl that one of my dear friends gave me for her wedding. 
and I don't use it enough. (laughs) (laughs) You're reminding me I need to do that. But I think that having something like that where, you know, maybe it is a little too big of a leap to open your own mouth and let your own sound come out, you know, but to generate something through a tool to start with, you know, through an instrument to start with, and then to allow that to open up the possibility of you actually using your own instrument Mm -hmm. to create a voice and to express what's on the inside and then using that as a further step in the transformation. That is just remarkable. I just, I love that. (laughs) I'm glad you do. It's changed my work. And, you know, that's what, with the Temple of Sound Healing, I've created these trainings, one for teach practitioners how to work with, use the bowls, but also trauma-informed sound healer certification where people learn how to work with trauma, with these different instruments and drums and so on, and voice for specifically for trauma. So it's, this is, sound is new. Sound is where yoga was 20 years ago. You know, it's just opening. So I'm really excited at the possibilities that that is going to have for women everywhere. Yes, I really, I hope that a lot of women listen to this and share it with their friends because unfortunately being in the field that I'm in, I run across a lot of women who have experienced trauma and often don't know where to go or who to go to for any kind of therapeutic help. And I think that what you're doing and the people that you're training, (laughs) that can be such a life changer. Unfortunately, there's a vast population of people who need this. Right. Well, my dear, we have been talking for a very long time, but I still have two more questions. Are you up for that? (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) Okay. What is your advice to young women in their 20s that you wish you had known when you were that age? Reach out. When you don't know your way, when you don't know, when you have a decision to make, reach out for support, maybe to an adult you trust, maybe to a therapist, to some kind of someone who can guide you to take whatever the next steps are for you. Don't hold back from getting support and trust your heart. Even if you don't, in your heart and your body are your answers and to learn to listen to yourself. Oh, very wise. Well, my final question is, how do you think that women can develop their personal power and courage? Through voice. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many ways, so many wonderful people, you know, doing this with women. I think there's so many ways. You and I are both training and teaching in this, aren't we? I honestly think that voice um, is one of a very powerful way to do that. And if not, to really question your stories. What are the stories you've been told about what it means to be a woman, about what you can, who you are as a woman, what you can do, what you can have, where you can go. Question every story because everything is ultimately a story and we can choose the ones we want to believe and we do have the freedom to discard the ones that aren't right for us, no matter who the authority is. Oh, I love that. Oh my goodness. Like that is awesome. Well, my three, I am so happy that we managed to finally get it together and record this interview. And I cannot wait to release it. It is going to be something that really surprises and informs and inspires a lot of people. I know that, that will be so. So before we actually wrap it up, I would like for you to share where people can find you. And also just want to share that you have a gift that we will include a link to in the show notes that is called the seven steps to speak your truth, even though you feel fear, guilt, or shame. So can you tell us where people can connect with you or find you out in the world? 
Yeah, so they can find me on my website, which is mytrae.com. And the gift is right there. You can just sign up for the ebook and you'll get that as soon as you sign up. And I want to thank you, Cynthia. Thank you so much for having me. It's just been a pleasure to have such a long and spacious and deep conversation and heartfelt conversation. Thank you for your heart and for creating the space for this. And I hope this helps women everywhere. <laughs> I'm sure that it will. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my three. This has been the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.